Our sermon this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, beginning in verse 15. Luke chapter 3 and verse 15, you'll find that on page 858 in the Pew Bible in front of you. As we continue to consider John's ministry as he prepares the people for the coming Savior. And so uh, consider with me this morning the Word of God. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with uh, his winnowing fork is in his hand. Let me try that again. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all that he locked John in prison. Our Father, we thank you now that we can come and consider your word this morning. We thank you that you have brought us here, that we are gathered together as your people who have been redeemed by your Son, that we might worship you and know you and follow you. And so we come now, Father, to this time which we devote every Sunday, that we might hear your word proclaimed through the power of the Holy Spirit, that you might change us. I echo my brother's prayers this morning that you and your power would come. I'm reminded of the Lord Jesus, who when the disciples asked, well, what are we going to do when, when you leave? What should we do? And you promised, Lord, that the Holy Spirit will come on you in power. And so we do not gather here this morning, our God, to play games, check boxes, to complete ritual. We come because we are needy of the Holy Spirit to come upon us in power that we might know you and love you and follow you. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the greatest English-speaking preachers of the 20th century, once described an experience he had when he was invited to preach at Westminster Chapel. Quote, Never do I think have I been so conscious of the power of the Word and the gale of the Spirit It is exceedingly difficult to go on living after such an experience, especially difficult to go on preaching. His grandson described his grandfather's ministry saying, the one thing he prayed for, the one thing he relied on, the one thing he waited for, and the one thing above all else which thousands felt under his preaching was the unction or anointing of the Holy Spirit. Well, Martin Lloyd-Jones, therefore, 
has some resemblance with John the baptizer who we will consider this morning. For in our study of Luke's gospel, we have seen how John was filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth, how he was groomed by the Holy Spirit in the wilderness, and how he has been launched by the Holy Spirit into his ministry, and the ministry has been so powerful and so compelling and so winsome that thousands have come out to him into the wilderness. And it's somewhat startling to me just to think about how this took place, that one day a hermit emerges from the desert barefoot, dressed in camel's hair with hair uncut for 30 years, all hyped up on honey and bugs, yelling, repent, repent, and thousands come to him, not just to see the show, but to repent. To follow the prophet down into the waters of the Jordan and to be baptized. It was, it must have been an incredible sight. Amazing. And as thousands, even tens of thousands, some speculate hundreds of thousands came to him, it is no wonder that we read verse 15. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. You see, they never heard such a man before. They never encountered such a man before. Never has the Word of God been presented to them with such power before. He is clearly anointed by God. And so they begin to wonder, is he the Messiah? Is he the Christ who's come to redeem his people to save us? And, and a discussion starts undoubtedly as people must have been talking in villages after villages across the hillside of Israel. Is he the one? The one that God promised to Adam and Abraham and Moses and Joshua and David and Isaiah. Is, is he the savior? In fact, in John's gospel, he, we even find out that people came and asked him. They said, okay, everybody, everybody's talking about this. We want to know, uh, are you the Christ? Should we worship you? Should we serve you? Should we devote ourselves to you? This is what they're wondering. And I, I, I kind of wonder what, what kind of temptation that might have been to John. Or the temptation that it might have been to a lesser man. I mean, you could imagine, I don't think it's very difficult to think, well, he, he might begin to think, well, that's a pretty interesting idea. You know, I, I never really considered it before. I certainly sacrificed a lot, right? And I'm out here and I'm following God. You know, now that you say it, I could see the resemblance between me and the Messiah. Right? But of course, John wasn't interested in that at all, was he? Not with John, it's not about him. He cared nothing really for the opinions of men. He wanted to point to Christ as a faithful preacher. A faithful preacher will always exalt Jesus and not himself. I appreciate J.C. Ryle, the the Anglican theologian of the 19th century who said of the faithful preacher, he will never allow anything to be credited to him which belongs to his divine master. He will be content that his own name be forgotten so long as Christ crucified is exalted. I also came across a story this week of a past, the pastor of Mount Zion, Baptist, uh, Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church in Los Angeles. The pastor tells of a of an elderly woman who was a member of his congregation. He affectionately calls her 1800 because he doesn't know how old she is, but thinks she might have been alive in the 1800s. So that's what he, he calls her. And, and 1800 makes it hard on visiting preachers. You see, she sits in the front row there on the front pew right next to the pulpit, and she waits about a minute into the preacher's sermon, and then she shouts, Get him up! Referring to Christ. 
And uh, she'll wait a couple more minutes. And if there's not enough Christ in the sermon, she'll shout, get them up! again. And if you don't have enough Christ in your sermon, you're in for a very long day because 1800 will not, will not let you go. She'll just keep after you. Well, John's, John's mission is, is, is to get him up. He's to prepare a people for the Messiah, the Savior. And last week we considered how he's doing this. How, how is John getting people ready? Well, we saw he's saying, you need to look at yourself. You need to consider your life and consider your heart, consider your longings. You need to repent. You need to place your heart on God. You need to change your roots. You need to change your hearts and bear fruit with keeping to repentance. Look at yourself and see the changes that need to take place in order to get ready. But today, as John's ministry is continually uh, unfolded for us by Luke, we see that he's changed his focus. And the focus today is no longer on ourselves, but the focus is on the one who's coming. John says we need to look to Jesus to consider his greatness. He's going to, to get Jesus up, if you will, at least in three ways. First of all, we'll see that John declares that Jesus is of greater worth. Secondly, we'll see that he is a, has a greater ministry. And thirdly, that he has a greater judgment. So consider, first of all, Jesus' greater worth. Again, note verse 15 says, As the people were in expectation and all were questioning their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And so John says, you're impressed with me. Right? You're all, you all think I'm something. Well, wait till you want, wait, wait till one emerges. There's one coming and then you're going to see greatness, right? I baptize with water. Big whoop, right? Big deal. There's one coming. You don't know him, but he's so great. I'm not even worthy to take off his shoes. And John's saying, the game hasn't even started. I'm just throwing out the first pitch. It's not even about me. Wait till the one who is coming. And he's going to be incredible. In fact, we see in John's gospel, you may want to turn there. There's a wonderful story in John chapter 3. John is, is one book towards the back of your Bible. So if you turn over towards the back of your Bible, you come to John chapter 3. That's on page 888. And there's this wonderful story of, of now that Jesus has begun his ministry. And he's become quite popular. In fact, uh, so popular that, that John's ministry is beginning to diminish. And, and people who follow John are somewhat concerned about this. They're somewhat alarmed. Note verse 26. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Right? And so they're concerned because John's church is shrinking and Jesus' church is growing. They're all moving to the church down the road. And they say, Rabbi, don't you understand what's happening? I mean, he's even stolen our baptism. That was our thing. That was what we're doing. And now he's out there baptizing. And now they're all going to him. They're all moving off to, to see him. And so they're very concerned about this, clearly. But notice John's response in verse 27. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves... Bear, bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bride who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. You see, John is saying, listen, the, the, the groom gets the bride. And I'm clearly not the groom. 
In fact, all I am is I'm a friend of the groom, and I get excited when the groom comes around. For you know what he says, continues in verse 29, Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. I don't care about myself, he says. I don't care about my ministry. I don't care about the size of my church. What I care about is that Christ is exalted and that people recognize that. And so my joy is complete, he says. And then famously, as you perhaps know this verse, in verse 30, he says, He must increase, but, but I must decrease. I, I need to decrease now. It's time for me to go away as long as Christ is made much of. He must increase. He, he's like a, a, a long-distance operator. Remember, you, you, would, you would call these people and they would say, who are you trying to reach? And you tell them and they hold for one moment and I'll connect you, right? And they connect you to the person you really want to talk to and they don't linger on the phone. They get out of the way. That's what John is, just trying to connect people to Jesus. It reminds me of Psalm 115 when the psalmist says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. Or as Paul preached in 2 Corinthians, we proclaim, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. He's the Messiah. He's the one we should serve and worship. One is coming, John says, who's so great, I can't, I can't even, I'm not even worth untying his shoe. That's how great he is. You see that there in, in verse 16? I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. How mightier, John? The strap of whose sandal I'm unworthy to untie. Now, John's referring to, to a custom that takes place uh, at this time. And by the way, when you think about people's feet, um, don't, don't think feet in our days. Think of feet back in those days, right? This is, you know, they the, don't have sidewalks and clean streets. Um, it's not Percival. They're not walking their dogs with little bags of doggy waste, you know, holding on with one hand, their dog on the other hand, and everything's nice and clean and pretty. No, this is just filthy, and it's muddy, and there's feces, and they're open-air shoes. They're sandals, and they're, they're nasty. They're very, very gross. In fact, for some people, even nice, clean, good-looking feet are gross, right? Some people just don't like feet, period. But let alone the feet in this day were absolutely filthy and abhorrent, and you didn't want to get near the feet. And so, it, in fact, there, there was a custom this day, as I mentioned, that, that uh, if you were followed a rabbi, let's say you were a disciple of a rabbi, you, you didn't pay tuition, but you had to do everything for that rabbi. You did, they didn't do anything. They didn't find their meals. They didn't clean their dishes. They didn't, do, they didn't do anything. You did everything for them except one thing. You didn't untie their sandals. In fact, an ancient rabbi would say, all manner of service that a slave must render to his master, the pupil must render to his teacher. Right? Everything a slave does for his masters, so a, a disciple does to, to his teacher, except that of taking off his shoe. Right? It's going too far. That's too demeaning. And you know, John comes up and says, listen, you don't understand how great he is. I, I'm not even worthy to take off his shoe. I, I'm not even worthy to, to remove his sandal. That's too great for me. And John begins to exalt the greatness of Christ, to magnify his worth. I think there's, there's a great lesson here for us because we have this tendency, I think, in our day to magnify other people. We like to exalt others. We get carried away with celebrities and this person and that person. We strive to catch a glimpse of perhaps a politician or stand in line to hear a person speak or line up to get someone to sign a book, which is, again, just very, very strange to me why anybody would stand in line to have someone write their name in your book. I even see this at Christian conferences, people lining up to get someone to sign their book. I mean, we just want, we'll stand in hours just here. Will you put your name in my book? And I'm telling you, if you try that with Johnny, he'd take your book and hit you on the head with it and tell you to repent of your silly desire to get his signature. We get so caught up with these 
people and we want, and even in Christian culture, consider all the praise that we offer to others, that we fill our minds with thoughts of them and occupy our hearts with adoration of them and move our tongue in praise of them and sacrifice that we might know them better and rearrange our lives that we might have more of them. I tell you, they're nothing compared to Christ. They're nothing compared to Christ. Paul is right when he says, I consider this all rubbish, it's all garbage compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And so we ought to be careful of how we exalt one another. I think John helps us saying, stop lifting me up. Look to Christ. I'm nothing. I'm meaningless compared to Christ. In fact, we also need to be careful not just of our desire or our tendency to magnify others, but our tendency to magnify ourselves. You see, well, John is lowering himself, isn't he? We, we have this tendency to do the opposite. We, we want to magnify our successes and exaggerate our victories and then hide our weaknesses and minimize those things. I came across a story of uh, Dwight L. Moody as I was preparing this message. Dwight L. Moody, Moody once had a conference in Massachusetts for pastors. It was there he's going to begin to train pastors and evangelists. And a, a great number of pastors from Europe came over to attend this, this conference with a number of American pastors. And evidently in, in Europe, uh, there was at least a custom in that day where you stayed at a hotel, you would take your shoes off at night and you would put them outside the door. And then a hall servant would come by and polish your shoes and return them the next morning. Well, Moody's walking down the hallway and he sees all these shoes in, in the hallway. And he re- suddenly realizes that these European guests don't realize we don't have hall servants in America. Right? And so, you know what Moody does? He, he takes all the shoes. Rather than embarrassing his European friends, he takes them and brings them back to his room. And then he goes and finds the American pastors and knocks on their hotel door and, and explains the situation to them. Say, let's polish their shoes for them. That's not... And you know... Every single American pastor that he asked had some reason that they were unavailable to polish their brother's shoes. So the great Dwight L. Moody went back to his room all by himself and started polishing shoes until one pastor found him and and became so ashamed that he was doing it, the host of this conference, that he went and got all the other American pastors and eventually they came and began to polish shoes. But it's not a beautiful picture of what it looks like to humble yourself. To not think too highly of yourself. Not to not magnify yourself. This humility that points to Christ. We're called to witness to Christ. We're called to point to Jesus. We need to be aware of the tendency to witness to ourselves. To speak our praises. And rather speak the praise of our Lord. In fact, you know how great he is? And John says, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. Well, you know, you can't, you can't read that without thinking about on the eve of his crucifixion. It was Jesus there when no one would get up and wash feet. It was the Son of God Himself. It was the Creator of all things who got up, stood up and, and wrapped a towel around His waist and went and, and took off the sandals of every one of His disciples and washed their feet to their great astonishment. He would then say, when He had finished washing their feet and put on His outer garments and resumed His place, He said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord. And you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that you should, you also should do as I have done to you, if you know these things. 
blessed are you if you do them. I wonder, Christian, do you know these things? Exalting others, lowering yourself, exalting the Lord. You will be blessed, I tell you, based on the authority of God's word if you do them. John says he is of greater worth. But he goes on and says he has a greater ministry. Note verse 16 as John continues. He says he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So John says, I I baptize with water, but there's one coming that's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now what's better, right? Baptizing with water or being baptized with the Holy Spirit. Right? One pastor says that the difference between baptism by water and baptism by the Holy Spirit is, as, is the difference between a lightning bug and lightning. Right? It's the difference between a ring and a wedding. It's the difference between a teardrop and an ocean, a breeze and a tornado. I mean, they don't even compare water or God. Right? They're not in the same category. John's saying, you know what I do? I perform a ritual. I take you, I plunge you in the water, and then I bring you back out. Right? Who cares? I mean, anybody could do that. There's one coming who's going to change you from the inside. He's going to transform you. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so John says, let's compare our baptisms. You want to know how great he is? Now, by the way, uh, you do understand that you are in a Baptist church today. And I happen to be a Baptist preacher. And so I, it's hard for me to read passages like this without uh, getting, getting my, my Baptist on, if you will. I want you to see very clearly that the hallmark of John's ministry, baptism, is not our idea. It is God's idea. It is not a denominational thing. It is a biblical reality. And so John shows up to initiate the new covenant, if you will, prepare us for it, and he begins to baptize. And then Jesus shows up, and what is Jesus doing? You saw that in John 3.26. Jesus is baptizing his followers. In fact, John 4.1 says Jesus was baptizing more disciples than John. And so John starts with it, and then Jesus actually gets baptized, and then Jesus and his disciples, really it's just his disciples who are beginning to baptize, and then he dies on the cross, and he's risen from the dead, and he says, okay guys, I'm going to heaven, but you need to understand your job. Here's your job. You go and make disciples. Well, how do we do that? Well, you do it two ways. You baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and you teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. This is how you make disciples. And so the, they they understand this, Evidently, because Peter in Acts chapter 2 preaches a sermon at Pentecost and everybody is, is convicted in their heart and they all uh, want to know. They say, what must we do to be saved? You know what Peter says? How are you going to be saved? What must you do to be saved? Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, Peter's not teaching us that baptism saves us, but he's, what he is teaching us, as the Bible teaches us unequivocally, is that there's no such thing as an unbaptized Christian. There's not one. There's not one follower of Christ who after the command to baptize his followers is given in Matthew 28 that they are not baptized. If Jesus himself was baptized, this is what we are to do. We are to stand before people and declare, I belong to Christ. And I know it's costly at times. It's co- Sometimes people are getting embarrassed. Some people, I don't want to stand in front of hundreds of people to do this. What do you think around the world? You want to know the cost for them when they go down in the water, usually out in a public river in a foreign country and commit themselves to Jesus Christ? It's supposed to be costly. That's the whole point. 
It's supposed to be a declaration that I'm with Christ. And John begins to baptize. And he says, I baptize you with water. But listen, Jesus is coming and he's going to baptize you too. But he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, as much as Baptists like watery baptism, we get a little concerned when people start talking about Holy Spirit baptism. Right? Because often when people start talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, especially when they do so on television, right, things get a little strange, right? Are you, they, get, they get a little weird and people start wearing white suits and putting thrones on the stadium and selling prayer rags and, and it, gets, uh, it looks a little chaotic. People start getting smacked in the head and falling down as if they're dead or even barking uncontrollably. And I, I don't know if you've seen all these things, but so we, we, are, we are rightly uh, um, concerned with that type of abuse of the Holy Spirit. God is not a God of chaos. He's a God of order. And so I think it's probably be important for us to be clear. What does he mean by baptism with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, there, there are a no, number of people have, have different ideas on this. Some people say, well, it's two baptisms, one with the Holy Spirit and one with fire. And so those who have surrendered their life to Christ are baptized with the Holy Spirit, and then the, the rest are baptized with fire. It's a picture of judgment. In fact, he's going to use the term fire for judgment in the very next verse, in verse 17. The only problem with that is that if you read carefully in verse 16... There's just one preposition. I won't stay long here, so bear with me if you don't care. But it's just the word with occurs one time. And so he says he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. In fact, my ESV actually put the preposition there twice, with the Holy Spirit and with fire. They've gone back and revised it and taken out that second with because it's not there in the original language. There's one baptism, not two baptisms. And this one baptism is a baptism of both the Holy Spirit and fire. So it can't be two baptisms. The other option is that it, people say, well, it sounds like Pentecost. And we know in Acts chapter 2 and that they're waiting for the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And then what appears over their heads? Well, tongues of fire. And, then, and this is when the church is gifted miraculously and begin to speak in, in other languages, begin to speak in tongues and empowered by the Holy Spirit. But the problem without uh, understanding, the, drawing it to this, the, um, this special gifting of the church, this second experience, is that John is linking this baptism with the Holy Spirit with his watery baptism. He, he said the parallel, they're, they're, they go together. They're not something one comes well after it. And if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we're not going to turn there, but Paul talks about the baptism of the Holy Spirit as the time in which we are incorporated into the faith, as the time in which we are saved. And so I believe what it means here when Jesus is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit is that he is going to send the Holy Spirit in your life, convicting you of sin and causing you to be born again, giving you a, a love and a faith for him. It's the Holy Spirit which makes us Christians. The Bible tells us no one can say Jesus Christ is Lord, but by the Holy Spirit. Right? The prophet Ezekiel said, I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. God says, I'm going to place my spirit in you. And now you're going to be able to obey me and follow me. And that heart of stone is taken out and you're given a heart of flesh. This is what, what John, I think, is teaching us. Is that, that all I can do is get you ready for him. All I can do is call for you to repent. The Holy Spirit's going to come and change you. He's going to remove your rebellion. He's going to cause submission in your life. Jesus would say in John 3 to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. 
And so we're baptized by the Holy Spirit in order to be born again. That's not all the Holy Spirit does, of course. Holy Spirit gifts us and sanctifies us and bears fruit in our life. He guides us. He empowers us. He makes us holy. He helps us obey. He gives us understanding of God's word. He assists us in worship. He glorifies Jesus in our hearts. And on and on we can go. In fact, Luke's going to go on and on. Luke is all about the Holy Spirit. He loves the Holy Spirit. Next time we see Jesus, he's going to be baptized. And what's going to be descending upon him? The Holy Spirit. And then the next passage, Jesus is going to go out into the wilderness to be tempted. And, and why does he go out in the wilderness? Because the Holy Spirit drives him. And then the next passage in Luke, Jesus is going to stand in Nazareth, his hometown, preach his first sermon. And what's he going to preach about? The Holy Spirit. And how he himself has been anointed by the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to see the Holy Spirit throughout uh, the Gospel of Luke. But it's here that he's saying the Holy Spirit comes and makes us alive. Jesus is going to pour the Holy Spirit in us. And he's going to create life in us. In fact, the Holy Spirit is so powerful that he not only creates life in us. He actually uses us that we might bless other people and create other life in other people. In fact, there's this wonderful passage in, in John chapter 7. This may be, a, if you're looking for something to meditate on this week, this may be a, a wonderful verse, John 7, verse 38 and verse 39, that you might want to spend some time considering and thinking about how it applies to your life. But it simply says this. Jesus, our Lord, says, Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That is extraordinary. You believe in me, Jesus says, you know what's going to happen? Not only am I going to give you life, but you're going to begin to impact other people. It almost seems like you're going to be used by me to bring life to other people. Out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. Verse 39, now this he said about the Spirit. That's a reference to the Spirit. He not only creates life in you, he enables you to create, to, to bring life with other, in other people. He works through you. What an incredible, incredible truth. And so Jesus is going to come and baptize with the Holy Spirit, but, but we, we've already established the, the baptism was the Holy Spirit and fire. So what does he mean by fire? Well, most commentators understand that this fire is not a fire of destruction, but a fire of purification, of cleansing. That the Spirit will come and give us life and, and He begins to work out the sin in our lives. He begins to burn out the, the impurities in us. Peter would write, You have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, though that perishes by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor of Jesus Christ. And so the fire he's referring to is not a destroying fire, but a refining fire. He works in your life. He purges sin from you. In fact, we we sang about it this morning. I don't know if you recognize that. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie... My grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flames shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. Right, that's what he's doing in your life. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit doing this in your life. He's purifying you. He's working powerfully in you. He's going to change you. Your behavior is going to change. Your accountant is going to change. Your desires and you're going to begin to bear fruit. And people will recognize, hey, wait, wait you're different. You're, you're no longer the same person. That's what the Holy Spirit does. I wonder, my Christian brothers and sisters here, do you, do you have, do you, are you aware of that? As my brother requested and, and it certainly echoed in my heart, do we know that power? The power of the, do you have you see him? How's he worked in your life this last week? What's he doing? He's in you, right? You are indwelt by God himself. How is he impacting you? I wonder if there are some here that are just kind of languishing. 
just limping along in their Christian faith. You need, perhaps need a fresh working of the Spirit. You know, Paul says in Ephesians 5 that we should be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. That we might seek after the Holy Spirit. As one pastor said, we might need a fresh work of His Christ-revealing, heart-awakening, sin-defeating, boldness-producing power. Jesus will send the Holy Spirit to you. He will. In fact, later in Luke's Gospel, Jesus will teach us how to pray. And in Luke chapter 11, He says about fathers, He says, you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will the Father give, you know what He says? The Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. Is that not extraordinary? Jesus, how much more will the Father give you, pour out, flow the Holy Spirit upon you? If you will ask. If you will ask Him, He's good. He longs to do that. Oh, we would do well to ask. Perhaps there's one here this morning that has, doesn't even understand what it means to be living in the power of the Holy Spirit. Doesn't know the Holy Spirit. I tell you, God will send the Holy Spirit to change your life. If you will call for Him, save me, change me, renew me. I'm a sinner. I turn from my sin. I believe in Jesus Christ. That He might send His Spirit into your life. You see, Jesus has a greater ministry. Well, John lastly tells us that Jesus has a greater judgment. Note verse 17. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. That's a greater judgment, according to John. Now, you do know in John's ministry, he's judging people, isn't he? I mean, that's kind of his whole, whole thing that he's doing. He's out there. And he's saying, repent, repent, you need to repent, you need to repent, that's a sin, that's a sin, you're a sinner, stop doing that. I mean, that's his, and he's standing out in the river and he's just shouting at people and he's, he's, he's judging them. And you could kind of imagine if, if John was over in the Shenandoah and, and you know, you're driving by and there's a group of people out there and you pull over to see what's going on and this man is in the river and he's shouting, hey, hey, you're a sinner. And you just get out of the car and he sees you coming, I know what you've done, you need to repent. Right? And you would hear people say, hey, don't judge me. Right? Who are you to judge? Well, I think John would respond to that and says, I'm no one to judge. All I'm doing is pointing out your sin. But there's one coming who will not only point out your sin, but he will hold you accountable for it. His judgment is far greater than mine. In fact, Jesus will come, according to verse 17, and divide the people, won't he? He will gather his wheat into his barn and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The metaphor is a, of a farmer who takes his wheat into the barn or into the threshing floor and they thresh it with a sledge and they break it all up into pieces. And then they take, uh, in order to separate the chaff, the useless chaff from the kernels of wheat or grain, he, he takes the winnowing fork and he, it's kind of like a big shovel and he throws it up in the air and the, 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 the heavy grain falls to the ground and the useless chaff is blown away by the breeze. And what you do with the chaff, once you've done that, you just kind of gather. The only thing it's useful for is to gather together and, and you burn it. You, you consume it with fire. And what John is saying is that one day, Christ is going to come and he's going to clear his threshing floor. Right? All, that's where all the, the chaff and the wheat is. And he's going to separate that. And the wheat's going to be gathered into his barn. The wheat are those who are broken over their sin and seek forgiveness through Jesus Christ and love Jesus Christ and place their faith in Jesus Christ. Others will, who say, I don't need your forgiveness... 
Others who say, I'm going to live my own life. Others who say, listen, I, I'm, I'm, I'm fine by myself. I don't want to follow Jesus. I'm not going to place my faith in Him. He says, your child. And you will be sent. Those who hold that position will be sent into the fire. In fact, Jesus Himself would say, depart from me, you who are cursed, and enter into the unquenchable fire. This is, of course, a reference to the place the Bible calls hell. It uses terminology often to describe it as a place of fire. I don't know, quite, to be quite honest with you, if that's figurative or literal. But regardless, it's going to be a place of terrible, conscious torment. Um, it is a, a place of eternal torment. It is not the first time that John has mentioned this. You Note know, verse 7, as we considered last week, he called out, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. And again in verse 9, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. It is a place of punishment that is so awful that Jesus mentions it 50 times in hope that people will flee from that destiny. You know why John's mentioning this? So that people will turn. So that people will come to Christ. He wants you to fear God. Just as Jesus does. Jesus himself in Luke 12 will say, I tell you, do not fear those who can kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So I wonder, do you fear Him? If you're in Christ, not the fear of, of terror, but awe. Is this not awesome? Is this not, if you will, it's terrifying. I'm amazed at how many people can live life without any fear of their Maker. He says some people are wheat and some people are chaff. Some people belong to Jesus, some do not. He's going to separate us too. What are you? Are you wheat? Or are you chaff? Maybe you don't even know. I tell you, you can know. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ has lived this life upon this earth and died for our sin to take, take hell for you. To take your hell upon himself in three days was raised from the dead. And if you confess through your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You'll be, you'll be saved. This is what he promises. For those who refuse him, they'll be cast into unquenchable fire. Now, I know when I preach on these things, as I did last Sunday, um, there are perhaps are people here who say, listen, all right, this is 21st century America. Right? I mean, it's time to get with the times, preacher. Um, this, this, I mean, we, we, don't, we don't talk about hell anymore. We talk about mercy and we talk about love and we, we talk about grace and we talk about um, kindness and we tell people that everybody's good and God loves you just the way you are and, and everyone makes it to heaven and, and, and we like that God. That's the God we like. That's the God we're comfortable with. Our, our, our president uh, quoted a, a, a great uh, a Buddhist uh, this uh, past week who said, every religion is just a, a branch on God's majestic tree or something to that. That's a paraphrase. Um, but this the idea. We're all good. We're all okay. We're all we're just kind of follow our own paths and there's no such thing as as hell right we don't we we like the merciful god but winnowing fork unquenchable fire axe laid at the roots i mean uh, it's not very sensitive right we we i i, I cannot accept that god 
Right? And this is, this is what we hear. This is denial of judgment. And I'll tell you, it's as old as Eden. You will not surely die. Come on, Eve. You think he's going to judge you? You think he's going to kill you? Well, that's ludicrous. Get with the times. And we hear it today. He said, what we do is we recreate God in our own image. We want God to be just like us. And I don't know why we insist on that. Why must God be like a 21st century American? Why must he be like us? In fact, I would suggest that we consider what the Bible says. In fact, uh, John Calvin suggests we do the same. He, he wrote 500 years ago, How shall we reply to the heavenly judge when he calls us to account? Let us envision for ourselves that judge, not as our minds naturally imagine him, but as he is depicted for us in Scripture by whose brightness the stars are darkened, by whose strength the mountains are melted, by whose wrath the earth is shaken, whose wisdom catches the wise in their craftiness, besides whose purity all things are defiled, whose righteousness not even the angels can bear, who makes not the guilty man innocent, whose vengeance, when once kindled, penetrates to the depths of hell. Let us behold him, I say, sitting in judgment to examine the deeds of men. Who will stand confident before his throne? We often say, you know, I, I'm okay. I'm good. Uh, I, and we compare ourselves to other people. Other people are not going to be your judge. Who's the God of the Bible who's going to be your judge? I love how C.S. Lewis put it in his own um, unique way in the stories of the Chronicles of Narnia when, when Lucy and Susan are are wondering about Aslan. Aslan is the Christ-like figure in those stories, if you haven't read them. And they, and they ask Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. They say, is Aslan a man? And Mr. Beaver responds, Aslan a man? Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the woods and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beast? Aslan is a lion. The great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he safe? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. What a beautiful picture of our God. There's one coming, John says. He is not safe. He's not safe at all. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will throw those who resist him into torment. He is not safe, but he is good. So good that he will die for those who sin against him. So good that he will pay our cost. So good that he invites everyone to receive him while there is still time. And John declares this uh, is who our, our God is. And he continues on according to verse 18. So with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. See, he keeps preaching, keeps giving exhortations, keeps giving warnings. And I love how Luke says it's good news. You notice that? He, so with many other exhortations, he preached the good news. Right? And, and many will hear this and many will listen to the sermon and say, it doesn't sound like good news to me. It doesn't sound very good to talk about hell and judgment, fire, torment. Well, I'm not saying it's cheery news. No one says it's light and fluffy news. But it's good news. It's kind of like the good news when someone screams in your face to wake you up, telling you the hotel's on fire, but there's still time. Right? That's not cheery news. But it is good news. If it's true, isn't it? This, this message John gives us is a message of mercy. 
And I understand modern Christianity runs in a different direction and say, we don't need to talk about hell anymore, right? That's not the way to market Christianity. We need to tell them, you want a good life? You want a happy marriage? You want to give you rich? You accept Jesus. Everything's going to go good for you. The problem is, one, that's a lie. Usually bad things begin to come when you begin to follow Jesus. Just read the Bible. In fact, just look at Christ's life. It didn't go well for him. And then you watch the disciples. It doesn't go well for them either. It's hard to be a Christian. So one, it's not true. And two, it's, it's truncating the gospel. In fact, the more we understand how much we have been saved from, the more we understand the judgment you and I have avoided, Christian, is it not the more we will love our Lord? Did he not say that he who is forgiven little loves little? He who is forgiven much loves much. I tell you, the more you understand what it is he has saved you from, the more you will love him. The more you will delight in him. It is good news, even though it's not appreciated by all. In fact, it wasn't appreciated in John's day. Note verse 19. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had reproved, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that he had done. This is, man is also known as Herod Antipas. He's the son of Herod the Great, who built the temple, who was alive. His dad was alive when Jesus was born, and now his son is in power. And evidently he wanted to go hear John, wanted to hear what all the rage was about. And so he goes there and he's up there perhaps on a hill with all his soldiers and his advisors and his entourage. And John looks up at him and he begins to call him out on his sin, right? No one's too great for John not to to call out. He evidently, according to this text and uh, historical records, divorced his wife and now is in an adulterous relationship with his half-brother's wife who also happens to be his niece. You see, he's destroyed two families. He's guilty of an adultery. He's guilty of incest. And John will, in another account, say it's not lawful for him to have her. In fact, he didn't just stop there. You know, at the end of verse 19, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, right? And so he keeps going and pointing out the evil things that Herod had done. He calls him out on his sin. He says, you're a sinner, Herod. Your dad built the temple. God lives there. You should go there and apologize and repent of your sin. And, and Herod hears this. And you can imagine how he responds, just like people respond today, just like hardened sinners respond today. Right? Don't tell me how to live. You want to stay out of my life, stay out of my home. Right? Can't you hear him say, we love each other. Right? We love. What's the problem? We're consenting adults. Right? Why can't we be together? Isn't, isn't that the important thing, that we love each other and we want to be together? What else matters? Who are you to judge? People have been saying that from the time of Herod, before Herod, after Herod. I, I want another woman. I want an illicit affair. I want an alternative lifestyle. But I'll tell you, friends, it's not an alternative lifestyle. It is not just a, a matter of what you want and what you love. It is a sin against the maker of heaven and earth. It's adultery. It's incest. He's destroyed two families in the process. And John says, you ought to repent. You ought to change your life. Well, Herod doesn't, does he? As you note, verse 20. Added to this to them all, he locked John in prison. Right? The worst thing he did is he arrested John, and if you know the story, he will eventually have John beheaded. I would advise you this morning, as we end our time together in God's Word, to not be like Herod. And what I mean by that is, is thank God for his warnings. Thank God for his truth. Herod's tragedy is repeated so often. That when they, people hear the warnings of God, rather than repent, they, they get angry. They get mad. This is nonsense. I don't believe it. Well, you don't have to believe it. No one can make you believe. 
But if you choose not to believe, you understand you're saying John is wrong and Jesus is wrong and the Bible is wrong. That's who you're taking your stand against. I don't believe in hell. I don't believe in judgment. I I think everybody makes it. We're saying Christ was dead wrong. The Bible is wrong. So know, first of all, who you're standing against. And know, secondly, the, the, the consequence of taking the stand. Because if you are wrong and the Bible is right, eternity is at stake. Judgment. Hell's at stake. It, it, I don't know why it has to be true just because we want it to be true. I think there's authority here. And Christian, as, as you look at this text and you see what John announced, you see what you've been saved from, you know how you've been saved. We're about to, to take of this meal. In a moment, brother and sister in Christ, you're going to hold that cup in your hand while it's passed to every other person who trusts in Christ in this room. And you're going to hold a little a piece of bread in your hand as you wait for everyone to receive theirs. And, and I, I would encourage you this morning, perhaps it would help you to, to remember Christ's sacrifice, is that you would perhaps think and pray and meditate upon what you have been saved from. You would think about the torments of hell and how he has died to redeem you from that, to save you from that. The fact that Christ would take your hell upon himself while he hangs on the cross. And my hope is that would foster a great love for him and a great desire to exalt him. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word this morning. But most of all, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that he has come to this world not as one who is safe, but one who is good to redeem us and to save us. You are a holy God and you will right every wrong. And yet all our wrongs have been righted on Christ on his cross. Help us to rejoice in that today. Help us to exalt him and to live for him, to recognize his great worth. Let your spirit come upon us even now, please, Father. Empower that we might be empowered to witness and obey and to love and to be like Jesus. I pray for my friend here this morning that does not know you. I pray that that these warnings would sink into their hearts. They would not just dismiss them. They would not occupy their mind even now with other things. But, Father, that you do good work in them, that you would send your spirit even to them and baptize them in the Holy Spirit that they might know you as their God and Savior and repent of their sin. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.